0: Good morning. Yeah, today's reading uh, will come from Exodus 3, 1 to 15. The slide says 11 to 14, but we're going to do a little bit longer reading, Exodus 3, 1 through 15. If you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, you can find today's uh, reading on page 46. Um, and once again, uh, today's reading will be Exodus 3, uh, verse 1 to 15. If you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, we can find today's reading on page 46. Uh, Please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Okay. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. When the Lord saw he turned aside to see, God called, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I to go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, As we come before your word this morning, I ask that you would grant that a deeper understanding of who you are would awaken deeper and deeper affections for you. Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us what you want us to learn, that it might transform us, change us, and help us relate to you in a way that you desire for us to. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last month, my family and I had the chance to visit Taiwan, and um, one of the things we did early on was to visit my grandmother. She's 99 years old, and when you're in her home, something that stood out to me was right in the middle of the living room, right next to the TV, there's this large, this Large wooden altar. At the altar, there's an image of a Buddhist figure. She's a, my grandma's a Buddhist, and and to the to the left, just to the just up on the wall, is a picture of my grandfather who passed away when I was still a kid. There's this altar is an altar to not just Buddhist figures and people or. or uh, figures in Buddhists, Buddhism, but it's also an altar to the Chang ancestral spirits. And it's not uncommon for altars like this to be found in homes. And it's not uncommon in Taiwan for you to hear of families thinking about and relating to ancestors. It might sound a little weird to the average American ear, but it, it's, it's a pretty common thing. My mom remembers growing up that there'd be days in the year where food and, and drinks and meat and fruit things like that would be offered to these ancestral spirits prayers would be offered to these ancestral spirits so there might be health and wealth and protection and there there could be protection for the for the family What is ancestral worship it's this idea that after loved ones die and go to be in the afterlife, there's a continued relationship with those who are still on earth, who are still living. And on the one hand, these deceased ancestors have the sort of dependence on, on those who are still living. their living relatives to care for them, to sustain them as they experience the world of the afterlife. And that's done through food offerings or other items. On the other hand, if you treat these ancestors well, well, you you pray to them, you honor them, you show them the proper respect, you present the right offerings, well, your life will in turn be blessed. Listen to one way this practice is described. The offerings are believed to nourish the spirits of the ancestors and ensure their continued well-being and protection of the family. Additionally, it's customary to burn incense and Joss paper, which is basically paper money, if you've ever seen that, that's burned as an offering, which are believed to provide comfort to the spirits and help them on their journey in the afterlife. And listen to this other description. The key point of ancestor worship is that living descendants provide those who've passed away with the means for a happy existence in the afterlife. Ancestors are both loved and feared. If neglected by their sons and grants or grandsons, they may deliberately harm their descendants. So my point in all this is I want you to hear this sort of give and take that some people in this world have with their supposed relationships with their deceased ancestors. you know if I perform this ritual just right, if I give just enough honor and respect, if I give the right kind of offerings that this The spirits of my ancestors will not only help get the nourishment that they need in the afterlife, but they'll provide the kind of life that I need in this life. And so the question is this, is this the God, is this what the God of Christianity is like? I mean, when you think about the Old Testament, right? And you you think about all the different types of sacrifices and burnt offerings and all the, the rituals that happen in the sacrificial system. Is our God really any different than these ancestral spirits? This morning, we're continuing on in our series, looking at the different attributes of God. We've looked at the ways that God is good, that he's patient, that he's unchanging, and last week that he's eternal. And all these different characteristics of God that we're learning about paint a fuller picture of what God is like and how we can better relate to him. And today, I want to focus on an attribute of God that might sound a little strange in your your ear. This idea that God is independent, that he's radically different from the kind of ancestral spirits who supposedly need their living descendants to help them thrive and to be happy in the afterlife. No, God, God does not need us. He doesn't. And I know that can sound pretty, that can make God sound pretty cold, pretty distant. Like he's so far out there that he doesn't need our prayers, that he doesn't need our worship, that he doesn't need us to get up early and gather like this on a Sunday morning. And that can be kind of discouraging to think about. But what I want to show y'all this morning is this, that it's actually a good thing for us that God is independent. That we serve a God who isn't dependent on us as human beings to make him feel good about himself. We're not just here to boost God's self-esteem. So here's where we're going this morning. What I first want to do is to define and spell out what it means for God to be independent. Then I want to demonstrate how God is independent from Scripture, particularly in the story of Moses and how he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then I want to end with a couple implications of what God's independence means for us. And what I most want you to walk away with is a clear answer to this question. However, way the Spirit speaks to your heart this morning, how is knowing that God is independent actually good? For you. So first, what does it mean that God is independent? Theologians use a fancy term called aseity, which comes from a Latin phrase, ase, which means from or by himself. One theologian defines God's aseity this way, that he is sufficient to himself, independent of anything outside himself. He goes on to explain, this guards God's freedom to enter into creation without compromising himself, to enter into relationships with the world and with people. In Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul gave a speech to the men of Athens, he specifically points out that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I like how theologian Wayne Grudem points out that people have sometimes thought that God created human beings because he was lonely and needed fellowship with other persons. If this were true, it would mean that God is not completely independent of creation. It would mean that God needed to create persons in order to be completely happy or completely fulfilled in his personal existence. Then he points out that the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always enjoyed the utmost levels of communion and fellowship among themselves, even before the universe was created. In John 17:24, Jesus talks about a glory that his Father gave to him because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. Grudem goes on to say this, The fact that God is three persons, yet one God, means that there was no loneliness or lack of personal fellowship on God's part before creation. And so on one hand, God has no need of being in a relationship with us humans. There's nothing he depends on us for. But on the other hand, this doctrine of God's independence also teaches us that in his sovereign will, though he has no need for us, He freely chooses to establish a relationship with us and enfold us into his plans and purposes for this world. Again, Grudem helps us understand a a truth that makes this doctrine of God's independence actually a good thing for us. And it's that, yes, God doesn't need us, but we and the rest of creation can glorify God and bring him joy that we are in fact very meaningful because God has created us and has determined that we would be meaningful to him. And God chooses to delight in us and allow us to bring him joy, to bring joy to his heart. So where do we see this in the Bible? What I want you to do now is to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter three, the book of Exodus chapter three, Many of you know the story leading up to this point in this chapter, but at one point in Jewish history, the people of Israel were held in bondage in the land of Egypt. Now, this was because one of Abraham's great-grandsons, Joseph, in a series of events, rose to power in Egypt. And in the middle of a famine, he invited his brothers and his father, Jacob, to settle in the land of Egypt And after many, many years, the people of Israel grew to be so big that they actually intimidated the king of Egypt. The Bible says in Exodus 1 that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel so that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. And so we read in Exodus 2, 23 to 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What was that covenant? Lots of people lots of land, simply put. Back in Genesis 15, God shows Abram the stars and the heavens, and numerals as they they are, and he says, so shall your offspring be. Later, God promises Abram, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, you guys get the point. And so we get to the beginning of chapter three, where we find an obscure shepherd named Moses tending to his flock out in the middle of nowhere. Now, this isn't just any random shepherd in the middle of nowhere, though. Just the chapter before, we find out that this man was a Jew who found himself out in the distant land of Midian far away from his people back in Egypt because he had murdered someone. And he was trying to get away from being killed himself by Pharaoh. So look down at verse 1, chapter 3. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, Horeb's the same thing as Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. So as we read along, or as we go along the story, Moses is just minding his own business, tending to his sheep, when out of nowhere he spots this bush that's caught on fire, but the strange thing is it's not consumed by that fire. And from this burning bush, Scripture tells us that an angel of the Lord begins to speak to Moses. Look down at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, there are different opinions about who this angel of the Lord exactly is, um, there's one view that I think makes the most sense um, that I read in a commentary and that, that view is that this angel is actually God himself. The rest of this passage details the conversation directly between Moses and God. Look at verse six, for example. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So Moses was, was talking directly with God. He was, he was at the same time afraid to look at God himself. And in verse 7, look down there with me, God goes on to tell Moses that he's seen the afflictions of his people in Egypt and has heard their cries because of their taskmasters. He says, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians." And to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But the catch is this. Look down at verse 10. God says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now Moses' response is telling, and this is where I want to make my point. Look down at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And what stands out here is the way that Moses seems to be missing the entire point of this encounter. This is not about him. Moses, after killing a man in Egypt, was now an obscure shepherd in the middle of nowhere. He's a forgotten part of the past and certainly had no dreams to rescue his own people from slavery in Egypt. He was content living in obscurity, tending to his flock, living the quiet life. But out of nowhere, through a burning bush, God steps into Moses' life with a plan to to send this obscure, forgotten murderer-now-turned-shepherd back to Egypt to get his people out of slavery. And what I'm trying to to get across is that God, though completely independent of humanity, no, he did not have to do anything when his people cried out for help, but he chose to enter the plight of his people. God chose to appear to Moses, initiating a relationship with him and sending him out on this mission. He didn't need to, but God chose to make Moses a meaningful part of the bigger story that he was writing. Moses asked God what to tell the Israelites if they asked the name of God who sent him. Look down at verse 14. This is God's reply. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. One commentator suggests that here we see God clearly pointing out his own independence from everything else he's created in this world. He's always been who he is in both his character and nature. He's able to be and to do whatever he wants simply because God is who he is and God is who he wants to be. Look down at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So if you notice, the, the name God gives Moses to tell the people of Israel is in the English translation, Lord. But if you'll notice, all the letters are capitalized. That's not always the case in the Bible. If you're reading in the ESV or in the, with, with the Pew Bible, for example, if you look down at the footnotes, you'll see that when Lord is all capitalized, it actually refers to a very specific name for God, which is Yahweh. This is the name one commentator explains that the Israelites back in Egypt would recognize as, tr- as a true God of old, the God of their own ancestors worshipped which then would provide Moses the credibility he needed to lead his people out of Egypt. Okay, so I was trying to explain God's independence to one of my sons in the car on the way back from Japanese school yesterday. And as you can imagine, it's kind of hard. And I mean, if you tell someone that basically God's independence means that he doesn't need you, I mean, that doesn't really feel good at all, right? So I want you to just do a thought experiment. Just think with me, imagine one day I was taking my boys out for a bike ride and we just happened to see that one of those tires on the bike was flat and it needed air to be pumped into it. Now, I don't need my boys to help me pump air into a tire. In fact, if I did it myself, I'd promise you it'd be a lot faster and a lot more efficient, but if you're a parent You'll know how this feels. Kids love to help out. Even if you don't have a kid, I'm sure you remember how you enjoyed helping, whether it's cooking with your parents or, you know, fixing something with your parents or with your dad, your mom. There's something different and special about just going ahead and letting a kid hold that big pump and just... Push and push and push. What little air they can get into that tire, even if that pressure gauge doesn't go very far. It, it's it's the act of being invited into something like that that makes a kid feel special and a meaningful part of that activity. Isn't that just like how we are with God? God doesn't need us. It's true. But just like Moses, God can choose to include us into what he's doing in this world and to draw us into the story he's writing in a way that brings him joy. So we've talked about what God's independence is, and I've shown you through Moses' story how God's independence is seen through Scripture and so now I want to just draw a couple implications from the fact that God is independent. How does God, how does knowing that God is independent, how is that actually a good thing for you and me? First, God's independence should deepen our dependence on him. You know, it's, it's possible <clears throat> to take this doctrine of God's independence and end up and just come to entirely wrong conclusions. One conclusion could be that since God is so independent of us, even if he exists, there's really nothing, there's really no point to try to relate to him. He, he's just, he's out there, he probably exists, but outside of creating the world and setting it into motion, th- there's really nothing that he has to do with my life, and there's probably nothing that I can do to, that really matters to him. And this might be how some of you here today feel about God. That he might be out there, yes, and and at the same time, he's just so different, so removed from you, and so far from what you experience day to day. In fact, you're pretty happy just living life independently from God. But you know, living independently from God is the complete opposite of how we were created by him to live. The Bible says that even though God doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You see, we humans are created by God to be completely dependent on him. That's what makes us so completely different from him since his existence and his well-being doesn't depend on us. But the human heart will literally be miserable until it learns to be dependent on God. That's why St. Augustine wrote, you arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy. Because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Pastor Jason once taught that the essence of sin is declaring your independence from God. And so, for those of you who haven't crossed the line of faith yet, I hope you see how you trying to live independently from God is really going against how you were created to be. We were created to find our deepest levels of joy and hope and satisfaction and peace in God. Jesus came to shatter our independence so that we would finally put our dependence on him. And he'll do that in different ways to get us there. He can and he will. just ask any Christian you know. Christ died on the cross to bear our sins that are so deeply rooted in a desire to live independently of God, to do things our own way, to live life however way we want. But Christ died so that like orphans, we would have a chance to be adopted into the family of God and learn to be children of God, completely dependent on him as father. Jesus isn't dead. He came back to life on the third day and is alive. He wants to be in a relationship with you. So for those here who are still far from God, maybe your next step is to just be finally convinced that living independently from God really won't satisfy. It's, That's it's not worth it. Because you'll end up trying to satisfy yourself in all the wrong things, things that can't take the place that God was meant to be for you. So let me encourage you to pray right now, right where you're sitting. You can just talk to God and and ask him to know what it means to depend on him and to find your deepest comforts, joy, and satisfaction in him. And if that's what you really want, let me also encourage you to have a conversation about this with a trusted Christian friend of yours sometime later today or this week. God does not want you to live independently of Him because He made you to be dependent on Him. So, God's independence should deepen our dependence on Him. And lastly, God's independence should also deepen our experience. prayer. Have you ever noticed just how long God took to answer the prayers of the Israelites back in Exodus 2? The Bible tells us that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to God for help. This is chapter 2. God hears their groaning and gets to work. And that work involves showing up to Moses in a burning bush. It eventually involves Moses and his brother Aaron asking Pharaoh to let the people go, only to have Pharaoh come down harder on the Israelites by making them make bricks without straw, at least making them find their own straw. And later some Jews accuse Moses and Aaron saying, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so we read in chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. We are free to question the wisdom of God. But we must, at the same time, understand that he is utterly independent of us. And so he moves at his own pace. And here, Moses is questioning the fact that God seemed to be moving at a snail's pace. But you see, Moses had just started the journey of freeing God's people from Egypt. He wasn't aware of all that the Lord was about to do. Like, Sending frogs and gnats and flies all over Egypt. Like killing off all the firstborn in Egypt. There was still so much to the story that needed to play out before getting to the good part. Getting the people actually out. No, Moses didn't understand why God was taking so long. The prayers of the people of God were still as of yet unanswered. In fact, things were getting worse but proof that God was sovereign over this entire situation is found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40 to 41. I want you to turn there with me. I think this is really neat. Exodus 12, 40 to 41. And it reads like this. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. God didn't miss a beat. He was in a day early or a day late. On that very day, 430 years later, You see, my point is that God had a specific day he knew he would free his people. But Moses back in chapter five was just not aware of this and with the rest of God's people longed for him to rescue them right now. God heard his people's cries for help and rescue and yet he authored a story that would ultimately test his people's collective patience and lead them to expose their lack of trust, their lack of faith, and their lack of dependence on him. And isn't this just how prayer works? We pray, we cry out, we long for God to have a breakthrough in our lives and we're just waiting for our prayers to be answered by a God we know can do anything, and so we know he could answer our prayers immediately if he wanted to. Why would he wait? Because God is independent. And he's independent in the way he chooses to write the stories of our lives. And so like it or not, he gets to call the shots on when and how he intervenes in response to our prayer requests. And that's not a bad thing think about it. What kind of parent would give in to every single one of his or her child's demands and wishes? Mom, I want chocolate for breakfast today. Dad, can I ride my bike without a helmet? Do I have to put on the seatbelt? It'd be crazy for us to think about a parent who every single time gives in to every single whim and desire of a kid. And this can help us understand just a bit more about why it's actually a good thing for God to be independent from us and to not answer every single one of our prayer requests exactly the way we want at the right moment that we want. God is infinitely wiser than us, and he knows the future. He knows the best way for things to turn out. And so the question is, will we trust in him if he leaves certain prayers of ours unanswered or partially answered or even answered in a way that we didn't really expect. This doesn't diminish our need to pray, but rather it teaches us to pray with even deeper dependence and trust in God. Paul Miller writes in his book A Praying Life that people often talk about prayer as if it is disconnected from what God is doing in their lives. But we are actors in his drama, listening for our lines, quieting our hearts, so that we can hear the voice of the playwright. You can't have a good story without tension and conflict, without things going wrong. Unanswered prayers create some of the tensions and the story God is weaving in our lives. When we realize this, we want to know what God is doing. So is there something that that you've been praying for that God's seemingly been taking an awfully long amount of time to answer? Maybe you've prayed about something once or twice or a few days, uh, but nothing really seemed to come of it. But I want you to know that God isn't far off. He's not trying to be cold or cruel to you. No, he loves you. And he's good. And he wants to be near you. He doesn't need us to pray to him, but he wants us to pray to him because he wants us to grow in dependence on him. So keep on praying and waiting on him. Bring those things that weigh on your heart to him, all your joys, all your fears, all your anxieties, all the things that make you down. And as you wait for God to to answer, trust that he'll answer in the way that he thinks is best, in the timing that he thinks is best. You know why? Why? because he's busy writing the story just like he was with the Israelites. And he knows where all the pieces are supposed to fall. He knows where all the twists and the turns in the storyline of your life are supposed to work out. He knows how all the different tensions and conflicts in your life are supposed to resolve. So yes, God doesn't need us but he's freely decided that we would be a meaningful part of his being and that we would be a part of the story that he's writing in this world. So let these truths draw us into deeper dependence on him and to pray with greater patience as we watch the story that he's writing play out in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't depend on us to pray to you or to worship you or to serve you. But even then, you made us and you care for us and you want us to be in a relationship with you. We were made to depend on you and to hope in you through prayer. Thank you that in you we can find joy and satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts for our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in you. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.